your trenches with dead guys because it's time for Grain of Truth. Please welcome your host, Mr. David Ennis. Welcome to Grain of Truth, the show where the truth has been invaded. Your grains of truth today. Lots of and or statements were found lying on the streets of Melbourne. Because someone forgot to shut the logic gate. (laughs) That was totally worth everything. Uh, Ravers frequently set their iPods to shuffle. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, A spice found by a legendary sea monster is Krakened Pepper. My esteem has risen so much. Thank you. Top that one. <laughs> this is only getting worse before it gets better. So to introduce our panelists for this episode, it's over to our resident scorekeepers, the Boffins! <laughs> From Mac Robertson Girls High School, representing domestic science, it's Anna Renzenbrink. <laughs> From the University of Melbourne, representing literature, it's Tim Redmond. <laughs> From the University of Tasmania, on system campus, representing monsters, it's Scott McAteer. And from Charles Sturt University, Walker Walker Campus, representing heroes, it's Rob Lloyd. Uh, the rules of Grain of Truth are simple. Points are awarded to the panellists for their responses to ridiculously absurd questions, scenarios and topics. Whoever has the most points wins the coveted Grain of Truth prize, which this week is a peace treaty. Ooh. Just make sure it doesn't spoil your peace dinnery. Now before, now, before we begin the quiz, here's a small challenge for everybody. Can you name the grain of truth that connects all four of our panellists' topics? That's domestic science, literature, monsters, and heroes. And we'll come to the answer at the end. But I will give you a clue. Hats and cigars. Hats and cigars is your clue. But we'll start with round one, which is called Right Said Ted. Each panellist must deliver a 90-second Ted-style presentation relating to a theme. At 60 seconds, they'll hear this noise. And at the 90-second mark, they'll hear this noise, at which they must wrap up their talk. Whoever uses the special skills to present on the theme the best gets the points. Uh, the theme of this TED presentation is battles, explosions and wars. Uh, so we'll start with Anna Renzenbrink, to, uh, representing domestic science, to talk about battles, explosions and war. Uh, Anna, your time starts now. Whipping, beating, kneading, cutting, rolling, slicing, dicing and icing. These aren't just cooking terms, people. These are acts of kitchen warfare. From cupcake wars to the Great British Bake Off, from Iron Chef to Christmas dinners at the in-laws, cooking competitions have been around for hundreds of years. The first recorded kitchen battle was in Naples between chef to the nobles Vincenzo Corrado and his apprentice Giovanni Scapino. (laughs) Local legends say that in the summer of 1609, when the town was awash with artists, merchants and medieval gangster rap, a fight (laughs) broke out in the kitchen of the Piazza Real over how much basil to add to a Napoli sauce. The apprentice challenged his master to a cook-off to be judged by a visiting artist, you may have heard of him, Caravaggio. Well, Caravaggio controversially picked young Giovanni as the winner. He just liked the extra splash of green from the basil, and Vincenzo, in a fit of drunken, resentful fury, stabbed his challenger later that evening in the chest with a knife, a swordfish, a bigger knife, and then shoved him into a pot of boiling pasta water. The town was abuzz for a week. 
you can still see the fresco depicting this battle in the Gallery della Colonaria in Venice to this day. Oh, I could go on and on and on about these historically accurate depictions, but there isn't time. So I shall just briefly mention the fiercest battle of them all, much more recent, the race for the top spot at the annual Swan Hill Agricultural Show last Easter, Gladys Wainwright v. Marge McKinney. Let's just say the red filling in the Victoria sponge wasn't raspberry jam. And the judges are now missing. Oh. Ladies and gentlemen, have a rinse and break. Uh, a lot of that was mentioning lots of uh, cooking and warfare in the kitchen. What is your favourite home-cooked meal, Anna? I think you have asked me this question in a previous podcast. Have I? I think I answered porridge. Uh-huh. I shall pass to the remainder of the panel. Well, my answer has not changed. I believe the question at that time was... Uh, probably was the same. Anyway, I, believe, uh, I, be, I believe in solidarity, I think all the members of the panel should say porridge. What do you say, gentlemen? <laughs> my favourite meal is porridge. <laughs> what about you, Scott? I like porridge. <laughs> and Rob? Porridge! Oh, no, so. no, Dave, can I just say... There is a masterful piece of kitchen warfare which most mums employ, mm. which is the kind of apology for the meal. Oh, <laughs> the, oh I'm sorry, it's a bit overcooked. And the, the classic, the I'll take the burnt chop. Uh, so pass egg warfare, I think, <laughs> yes. Is that you, David? What do you like in your mouth at 2am? Oh, Tim <laughs> Redmond. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Usually just a glass of water. Anyway, so to next speak on the You're topic of battles... glass of water. <laughs> oh, uh, 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 uh. To next speak uh, on the topic of battles, explosions and war is Tim Redmond representing literature. Uh, Tim, your time starts now. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we're all tired of uh, slow-motion walkaways from explosions and uh, entire cities being destroyed in some director-centric race to 9-11 the hell out of cinema. But these are movies, and I've got to speak literature, and surely my job uh, to be the... Uh, the doyen of literature and grain of truth is to discuss battles, wars and explosions through the prism of literature. No, it isn't. Oh. I have one job, one job <laughs> here today, and that is to be pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> so put down the slow-mo Wahlbergs and Will Smiths and let's dive in as I do a reading from War and Peace. <laughs> put away your literalisms. <laughs> and let's find out how Tolstoy described the death of 80,000 men at the Battle of Auschwitz. <clears throat> Just as in the clock, the result of the complex action of innumerable wheels and pulleys is merely the slow and regular movement of the hand marking the time. So the result of all the complex human activities of these 160,000 Russian and French troops, all of their passions, hopes, regrets, humiliations, sufferings, outbursts of pride, fear and enthusiasm, was only the loss of the Battle of Austerlitz, the Battle of the Three Emperors as it was called, that is to say, a slow movement of the hand on the dial of human history. Pretense, tick. (laughs) War, battles, explosion, tick. Bombs, truth, Tolstoy, boom. Ladies and gentlemen, Tim Redman. I will now brood for the remainder of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) And now it's the various sounds of Tim Redman brooding, including... And everyone's favourite. <laughs> Let's not forget the two in the morning, Tim Redmond brooding. Ooh. 
That's a tall glass of water. <laughs> Our next speaker is Scott McAteer, representing Monsters, to present on the theme of battles, explosions, and war. Uh, Scott, your time starts now. England, 11th century. The Vikings have attacked, but the English have them on the run. The Vikings have crossed Stamford Bridge and are trying to regroup. They just need more time. Stamford Bridge is so narrow, only one man can cross at a time. And the Vikings have left one man to guard it. One berserker. Berserker. It means bear-skinned man, and they are the supernatural man-bear warriors of the Vikings. That lone berserker stood before the English and let out the spirit of the bear. He stood before the English and transformed. He stood before the English and he went berserk! The English, they looked at him and they muttered to themselves in fear. Oh, hairy chap, isn't he? <laughs> the berserker man bear killed 50 English one by one at Stamford Bridge with a bird berserker cry of <laughs> until an Englishman got in a boat and stabbed him from underneath and he died with a berserker howl of Ooh, me bum. <laughs> and so the English were victorious against the Vikings and the man bear. Hurrah! but was soon defeated by the French. Yeah, falls. <laughs> and so now Stamford Bridge is remembered as the last stand of a Viking man bridge. Instead of the place where thousands of Englishmen passed each other awkwardly and made saucy innuendos. Oh, excuse me, sir. I shall have to squeeze past you. Quite all right, my lady. <laughs> oh, I think I've grabbed your quarterstaff. I've got my fingers wrapped around something long and stiff. And I've accidentally put my hand in your muff, which is a woolen hand warmer of the time. <laughs> Of course, the berserker story is all bollocks. Didn't happen. Uh, berserkers weren't even warriors. They were shamans, religious figures. It's a story that was made up years, years later, uh, probably by some guy in an armchair with a, a warm cognac and a good shag tobacco. <laughs> uh, for true stories of battlefield monsters, there's, there's really only one figure. It's a recurring figure of a mysterious figure in white. Dates from ancient times right up until the First World War, where it was called the Comrade in White. Uh, the comrade in white doesn't uh, berserk, he doesn't attack. He stops with the wounded and the dying soldiers and sits with them and talks to them until either they are rescued or they too join the ranks of the comrades in white. <laughs> it's not really a monster story, but in war there are monsters enough already. Let's mm. oh. Scott McAteer. Oh, my God, you've given me goosebumps. Another slow movement on the hand on the clock face of time. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's true. You were talking about the, about the concept of a berserker, and of oh, course later oh. we would use that as an adjective. Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I would like to imagine in several uh, centuries of time, if our own names would therefore turn into adjectives, what would that use to describe? If I was to decide that something was very maketeer, what would it be? Uh, over time, probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, that's one way. Uh, what about you, Rob? What would be if I was to describe something as very Lloyd? <laughs> Hideously inappropriate. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Uh, if something was delightfully Renzenbrink, what do you think it would be? Uh, shrill. But charming. <laughs> and like the porridge I had. <laughs> and if something was quite Redmond, what would it be? Unnecessarily intellectual. <laughs> oh, jolly good. <laughs> Fabulous. There we go. Well, uh, whilst, or whilst we're there, what would I, I'm not sure about oh. Innes. What would be? Uh, what would the Innes adjective be? It'd be incredibly well dressed. Yeah. Very delightful. Yeah. Oh, you delightfully well dressed. Delightfully well dressed. No, it'd be. It'd be. What would it be? Mm. It'd be a three-piece suit in a male swan. Innes. That's oh. what you'd be. You'd be the beacon of civility. Ooh. The Armageddon beacon of civility. civility. There was a terrible <laughs> riot going on, but with Jared, Jared was the innocent. 
<laughs> we <laughs> just, he was the he beacon, was the beacon totally of civility a... with just a hint of passe. <laughs> <laughs> Always. <laughs> One cannot be civil without passe, I imagine. David has written that down, beacon civility. You're going to get that tattooed in Sanskrit. <laughs> on your bum. Uh, well, where else? Where else? Way, one way to find that out, two in the morning with a glass of water. Uh, our final speaker is Rob Lloyd, representing heroes to present on the theme of battles, explosions and war. Uh, Rob, your time begins now. I'm going to talk about a certain war, a certain type of wars. Star Wars. Let's go back to 1999. A dark time for me. Doctor Who had been off the air for a long time, so I did not have my nerdy obsession to keep me warm. Do you all remember where you were when they announced that the prequels were coming out? It was like when finding out where you were when the man landed, when men landed on the moon, or when Princess Diana died, or you know, trying to keep in touch with my nerd roots. Uh, you know, where did when did they fake the moon landing and? When did uh, the Queen get Princess Diana bumped <laughs> off? Because she knew too much. <laughs> I heard rumblings about it for a long time, but it was all announced, officially announced on the last release of uh, the Star Wars original cian- uh, cin- cin- cinematic releases on VHS, where there were interviews with Leonard Moulton and George Lucas, and he said he's written the scripts and they're beginning pre-production. Oh, my throat tightened. My chest tightened. My pants tightened. <laughs> They came out. It was finally real. Star Wars was coming back. It was the 1990s, and I thought to myself, you know, yeah, Star Wars. I liked that when I was a kid. When has Star Wars ever let me down? Doctor Who has let me down. When has George Lucas ever put a foot wrong? I hadn't seen the Christmas special. I couldn't judge it at that time, all right? So I became a Star Wars fan again for the second time. I waited in line three hours just to get tickets to the midnight screening. And then on the night of the midnight screening, I waited in line four hours just to get in early and get a decent seat. But to top it all off, yes, that's right, ladies and gentlemen, the piece de rebel resistance, I brought Star Wars Trivial Pursuit. Now, I'm quite proud of it, ladies and gentlemen. This was not a fun game, all right? Imagine it, bringing Star Wars Trivial Pursuit and playing it with other Star Wars fans at the midnight screening of Star Wars Episode One. all right? Six players entered, one player left. It was like Thunderdome. Plus, the entire audience was there in costume and makeup and stuff like that. They were throwing in chainsaws. <laughs> I barely got out with my dignity intact. And that is my dark, dark memory of the dark days of when the prequels of the Star Wars ascended on our reality. Ladies and gentlemen, Rob Lloyd! Uh, Star Wars is one of those films that everybody has seen. I would just like to know if there's something on the panel that is incredibly popular, but you feel like you're the only one in the world who doesn't like it. Um, For me, it's Breaking Bad. I don't understand why everyone loves it, and I just think it's a very sad chemistry show. Um, But... uh, uh, Rob, uh, is there something that's incredibly popular but you don't like it? Um, I, I, I never got into the whole Braveheart thing. Mm. There was a big Braveheart thing uh, years ago. Everyone mm. going, oh, Braveheart, 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 Braveheart. And so, like, you know, Gladiator became my Braveheart, which is really weird because, you know, I was taking Russell Crowe over Mel Gibson. It's like they're both evils. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, the whole Avatar thing I never got into. Yeah. Avatar got really, really huge. Um, but one thing I'm really uh, disheartened about, Lego has gone too far now lego used to be awesome and cute it used to be it used to be space or town and then they brought in robin hood but now it's just it's too much it used to yeah yeah medieval was yeah robin hood as well what so. about you scott is there something that is incredibly popular but you're not a fan of don't tell rob lloyd this 
but I actually don't like the Flash TV series that much. Oh. I find it a bit rubbish, and they have to keep in adding other superhero characters. I just watch episodes of Gotham over again. Because <laughs> people get stabbed in that. It's awesome. You can't keep on saying stabbing is a reason to watch... Stabbing is the best reason to watch Gotham. <laughs> All right, okay. The guy brings the penguin flowers. He's just a delivery boy. And the penguin stabs him. The reverse, for no reason. The reverse, great. The reverse flash stabs someone with just his hand by yeah, moving it so fast. One stabbing. That's like, that's like <laughs> that's five your... minutes in Gotham. <laughs> I think we need to hear something from the pretentious side of the uh, table. Uh, uh, Tim, is there something that uh, you, is very popular but you're not a fan of? Enid Blyton is a whore. Oh! 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 Correct. <laughs> it's, it's true. <laughs> That's why it's called Far Away Tree. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> uh, what about you, Anna? Is there something that's incredibly popular but you're not a fan yes. of? Gnocchi. <laughs> uh, I, I find it very bloating. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not. It's I. I completely and utterly understand that. That's it's true. A bit uppity as a pastor, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It, it's tr- it's trying to be more meals than necessary. Yes, exactly right. Mm, indeed, won't have any of that. Yeah, mm, quite. <laughs> Don't we feel quite civilized? Uh, I'm being the beacon of civility. Yeah. There we go. Excellent. All there's a hint of Passag. All around of Passag. But there's one shining light. It's David Innes. He will save us from knocking. <laughs> Look out! The beacon's Lights. piped up. <laughs> They're just dumplings. <laughs> What's wrong with dumplings? But your dumplings know what they are. Dumplings are dumplings. Gnocchi should just go and admit that it's a dumpling and be over with. Tim, come away from the window. Stop breeding. <laughs> you know what a dun- dumpling is? A dumpling is honest. So I thought I'd quote Doctor Who there. <laughs> Carry on. Uh, you'll, cu- you'll, the- cu- you'll cut that out, won't you? <laughs> so that's the end of the round. <laughs> And it's time for a score update from the Boffins. Boffins. Yes, thank you, David. According to the Grain of Truth cookbook, Anna has taken the lead with a perfectly cooked pork chop. Oh, Oh. lovely. Thanks for that. (laughs) And now the next round is the analysis and application round. So our panel is divided into teams of two and must apply their skills to an application task. Robin Scott. Yes. I challenge you to explain these story outlines... Uh, as if you were televangelists. Mm-hmm. So I need you to explain this. Uh, and we're going to do the story of uh, the Karate Kid. Mm. I would like you to explain the story of the Karate Kid as if you were both uh, big American televangelists, please. A boy. A boy. A little boy. Here's a little boy from a little town and he moved to another town which was bigger than the one it was before. A sinful town, a town full of sin. A sinful town, a town full of sand. And he was tempted. He was tempted to take up a path of violence. He was tempted by the man with the blonde hair and the very, very not gay headband. (laughs) In the snake dojo. And he said, the serpent... The serpent, yes. The serpent dojo. Cobra Kai. And he said to the man, teach me how to fight. And he fought that boy and that boy was hurting. He was hurting. He did not have a soul. Hallelujah. And he found, he walked away from that dojo. And and he was walking away from his faith. From his faith. But then the light of the Lord came inside a small man of indistinguishable Asian background. <laughs> and he taught him. He taught him with the simple tasks. The simple tasks that a carpenter would teach a son. Yes, like polishing wood. <laughs> <laughs> or painting the wood. And that boy, he learned. He learned 
what it is to be a man who will fight for your honor. And he will to fight be the hero, for your honor. The hero that you're I'll looking for. And like Jesus, he's going to live forever and knowing together that he did it all for the glory of the love of the Lord. The love of the Lord. And he would fly like a crane. Like a crane. He would fly like a crane. And he would strike down the sinful serpent. Yeah, yeah. And find redemption in the alms of of Elizabeth Shue. Ladies and gentlemen, Robin Scott. Hell yeah. Well, I don't need to see the movie now. It's great. Uh, Anna and Tim, uh, I wish to challenge you to enact the missing prologues to these very popular stories that would shed new, uh, to shed new light onto these films, books and television shows. Uh, so I need you, what would be the missing prologue that would perhaps put a brand new light? And the first prologue I need you to enact is the prologue that we did not see to Jaws. Mm. A baby shark swims through the Atlantic Ocean, free, willing, willful. A mama shark watches on as the baby shark swims free. Joyful. Love him. Loving. And suddenly, a shadow. The orca, Quint, above the Ahab of Jaws, throws his mighty harpoon through the mother, impaling it. Little baby shark turns around and sees the mother thrashing. And he screams, Mama! <laughs> Mama! <laughs> Quint rolls up and Mama Shark. Little baby shark comes to the surface, puts his little great white eyes out, and what he sees, he will never forget. That man's face is etched on his memory for the rest of his life. Laughing! <laughs> laughing at the little baby shark, saying, you just a baby. You're nothing. That little baby shark, his little baby shark heart broke. He swam away and he met a polar bear. <laughs> they were friends for quite a long time. Quite a long time. <laughs> and that polar bear, he trained that little shark to be a killer. For one mission, to find that man, Quinn. Revenge. And avenge his mother's death. Jaw. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Adam and Tim! We caught the evangelism virus. Yeah. <laughs> we get passionate. Australians, we're not comfortable. Except that we're saying, Ball, you white maggot! <laughs> what, what was that? That was me at the footy doing a pirate. <laughs> oh, okay, right. I'm so guilty of this that yeah. I start getting lilty. Yeah. There's, there's it's some just, deep it's just shame. Easier. It's just easier. Is it easier to be passionate? To have feelings. Anyway, Jaws. <laughs> That's it. Jaws, anyway, thank you for bringing it down. Jaws. <laughs> and Finn. Jaws. <laughs> Close the Jaws trap. Yes, Jaws. Uh, well, that's the end of the round, so it's now over to the Boffins for a score update. Boffins. Oh. According to the Grain of Truth Napland paper, Rob is in the lead by being in a statistically average postcode. Yes! Yay! It makes me want to scat. Jenny. <laughs> I love that song. It's great. Uh, yeah, Jenny. Oh, Jenny. I think we went, Jimmy. <laughs> Who's Jimmy? Oh, I'll show dear. you later. Uh, uh, Okie okay, dokie. Our next round is called the Metaphorical Funeral Round. Um, uh, Tim, you'll yes. be the minister in charge of this funeral, and the other panellists are grieving relatives at this funeral, uh, except the funeral is for a metaphorical concept, and the, today the funeral is for theatre itself. So this is the funeral for theatre. When you're ready, Minister Tim, uh, away you go. Let us all look grief squarely in the eye. And see the departed for what he or she 
was um, to speak briefly the, the mother of theatre, Mrs. Adams. Well, the, the lights are dark forever now, aren't they? Those, those, those curtains that have drawn close for one, one last time and there'll be no one picking up lolly wrappers anymore. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I can't go on. No, no, it's perfectly understandable. And if your grief could be topped by anyone, it would be a Shakespearean actor who is now out of a job. <laughs> Mr. Kincaid, would you share, shed some thoughts? We've had some good times. The early days were wonderful. Mm -hmm. The smell of the grease plant. But then it started to decay. Sometime around the 1970s. <laughs> he just became disjointed. Lost his way. Lost his way. Yeah, he started wearing just black, no exciting costumes. He became avant-garde. And just sat in silence for hours and hours at a time. I couldn't understand a word he was saying. Oh, God. We, um, we have a very special guest, the one surviving sibling of theatre. Please, let's hear from Fringe Theatre. <laughs> Religion, religion, religion. Sexual frustration. Scene. I think we can all take some hope from that as we bury theatre six feet under the ground. Let us pray. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the panel! Chilling. Oh. I think I've taken some of your pretentiousness. Sorry about that. <laughs> There's Mr. plenty to go around. <laughs> it's infectious. And you get some pretentiousness. And you get some pretentiousness. Uh, Okie dokie. Well, that's the end of the round. So it's time for a points update from the Boffins. Boffins. Yes, thank you, David. According to the Grain of Truth bank loan, Tim has taken the lead by paying off his mortgage. Yay! Uh, you should borrow against it now. No. Okay. <laughs> Uh, before we find out who won today's show, it's now time to reveal the answer to our Grain of Truth Connection Challenge. Firstly, did anyone on the panel get the connection between domestic science, literature, monsters, and heroes? What was the clue again? Uh, hats and cigars. Hats and cigars. Sausage rolls. Sausage rolls? Sausage rolls. Uh, what would you suggest sausage rolls? Just some really, really, really big sausage rolls at 7-Eleven sometime. <laughs> Why'd you turn into Cartman? It's a really big sausage roll, Cartman. It's really big. It's a big sausage roll, Cartman. This makes really great radio. Was were Robin Scott correct? No, I'm afraid not. I think I've. I've got a feeling it's Winston Churchill. Yeah, uh, why, why do you think, gentlemen, that it's Winston Churchill? Well, for domestic silence, um, Winston Churchill famously pretended that he was using the ration books but just ate huge amounts of quail <laughs> and drunk champagne. Um, of course, he's a hero to some and he's a monster to others because of, like, they authorised the Dresden bombings and things like that. The one I can't quite crack is literature because I know that he wrote some uh, very good historical alternative history articles... But I don't know if he really was actually Dr. Seuss. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know that. One bob, two bombs, <laughs> three bombs. One bob, two bombs. <laughs> I, well, I do not like this Hitler man. I do not like him on the can. <laughs> I shall have my green eggs and ham on, uh, the, on the beaches. Well, I <laughs> or in France. Say, are we right? Uh, are you we are right? indeed correct. Yay! Yay! 
was Dr. Seuss. The connection was Winston Churchill, who is an iconic World War II hero in British history with his famous speeches and tactical suggestions. He's also considered to be what some might refer to as an imperialistic monster, uh, including such examples as what was mentioned about the Dresden bombings, but also for his treatment of the native Sudanese, which I believe he is quoted as saying, I personally shot a couple of savages. Um, Also... uh, Oh, Dr. Seuss. (laughs) Kenyans and the Boers and they're during their respective battles and wars. Um, Winston Churchill not only wrote books such as A History of English-Speaking Peoples and the Second World War, but there's also an American novelist by the same name who wrote a number of novels such as Mr. Keegan's Elopement and The Crossing. Uh, Winston Churchill was noted for saying the stomach uh, governs the world and there is a cookbook by Georgina Landmere which contains recipes of dishes that were served to Churchill throughout the war. So Lots of quail, was it? (laughs) Yes, it's just 90% quail. Quail. It was... Foolishly using imperial measurements. It's also quail porridge, I believe. Quail porridge, it's spicy. Quail champagne. For breakfast. I love a bit of quail champagne. Quail champagne. But it has to be from France. What? Well, the Nazis have France. English quail champagne. I don't even know if you're saying words anymore. Winston Churchill is played by Terence and Phillip. So, Boffins, that is now the end of the program. So, could you determine from your working out who has won the peace treaty? Yes, thank you, David. Pipped at the post, Mr. Lloyd. The winner, the winner is Scott McIntyre. Uh, and Scott, uh, what uh, what are you going to do with your peace treaty? I'm going to give it to the Middle East. Oh. I'm going to make them fight over it, though. <laughs> in, <laughs> in a cage. In a cage. Thunderdome. Thunderdome. Indeed. Oh, that will solve no issues. Um, well, that's the end of the program, and I hope you enjoyed it. You can come and see the recording on the first day of the month at 1pm at the Wesley Our website is www.greatertruth.com.au, and you can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash greatertruthshow, and on Twitter at greatertruth. Now, let's to thank our panel at Arendt and Brick, Tim Redmond, Scott McAtee, and Rob Lloyd, our often of the week, Brendan Jolly, a theme, oh, jeez, the theme music composed by Matthew Hedgraff, arranged by Michael Bell of Orange Studios, our logo designer, Tom Markovich, our sound restorer, Armand Petit, uh, our properties manager, Stret Tressa, and official pun better, Asher Cameron, our uh, venue, The Wesleyan, I'm your host, David Is, and it's Monday Day! This has been your Beacon of Civility production. Yay!